Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. to rethink my appearance hmm why is that like i've always tried to project artsy and Mm. i've had to come to terms with me being preppy Uh, i I feel that this is this is something that i think you have noted right i'm i'm preppier than i think i am hmm have i noted this I think so. I think so. Like after I told you that, like you know, I was on crew in high school, and like, oh, that you're like uh, you were like a jock essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jock is pushing it. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah, but anyways, like I feel like I keep having these moments where like I'm walking into places of business and not. I don't feel like I'm fully communicating what I'm all about. Like that, hmm. I walked into this plant store one time with Allison, mm-hmm. and you know we're looking around. It's like a cutesy, you know, shoppy shop plant store, and the person working there is I don't want to profile, but uh, definitely not straight looking. And okay, we. We're talking. She hears that I like dinosaurs and is like, oh, yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park, man. Chris Pratt, huh? What a hunk. And it's like, I, huh. is, this what, is this what you think straight people like? I, which was my question. Right. But then I had an experience uh, just this past week where I had to confront the idea of my appearance again, where... I went in, I had to get a last minute haircut. I go into the barber shop. I go into one that I uh never been in before. Mm, uh bold. you know, it just seems like a basic, you know, a basic barber shop. Uh I go in. It, it is packed. Everyone has uh like black aprons, right? Like Okay. Yeah. You know, that that they put around your neck. I sit down. The guy puts uh a uh thin blue line flag. Uh, bib on me oh get out of there get so <laughs> i have to sit there through the entirety of this haircut staring at myself in the mirror wearing a blue lives matter apron wow yeah you that just is... have to sit there and stare at jesus like, that. like that's bold man that wow i yeah oh yeah God. no i am uh, i was uh I, I, I didn't know. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to say anything. The man has, you know, scissors and right. has me in a very precarious situation. Yeah. You know? God. Like, I'm, I'm, expect, yeah. I'm expecting him to give me a halfway decent haircut at the last minute. You know, I I have a rule and this could be biased and I don't care. Um, mm-hmm. 
if you have like a police lives matter or we support police sign or anything outside of your barbershop, I'm just going to assume the only thing you're good at is crew cuts and I don't want one. So I'm not going to go there. <laughs> That's because I have, I have barbershops like near me that are like that. And I'm like, well, these are where all the people are leaving with like barely any hair on their head. So I don't want to go right. here. You know what I mean? I need, yeah. I need the artsy barbershop, which I also have the second rule that I have is do not go to a bar. And this goes for everybody, by the way. Uh, do not go to a barbershop that you don't know and get a haircut because like nine times out of 10, because I am this 10, they're going to mess it up because they have no mm. idea who you are and they don't care. Yeah. So yeah. I had that happen in Italy and it was kind of the worst. Mm -hmm. So I just I think like I want to show my support for you know, barbershops. Like, you know, if yeah. only there was a, if only there was a flag that indicated like that hmm. barber lives matter. Oh, interesting. I wonder if it's yeah. just a swirly thing outside. Yeah. Like, could you do a, like the, the black uh, flag, but the stripes are red, huh. white, and blue. Huh? And it's like barbers that are open on Sunday for right. clueless men like me that cannot get their calendars together. <laughs> I I think I think they bar yeah, barbers that are open on Sundays for people that cannot plan anything. They need mm. their own holiday. Mm. True. Any excuse for a holiday, of course. Like we talked about here before. <laughs> yeah. Not a bad idea. Again, more business proposals. I just think mm -hmm. if, if there's a barbershop where somebody's either got like long hair or a mullet, mm -hmm. or like a handlebar yeah. mustache that's well groomed. Like, I think you're in the right place. You need you need somebody who knows mm -hmm. how to style insane haircuts because right. That's that's how you know they're gonna take their time and you're gonna get your money's worth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. I it it didn't seem like the most basic. Like you know, just getting a crew cut type of place. Like there seemed to okay. be a variety of people in there. Sure. I think it was more just. Because also, it wasn't like it was an all-white barbershop either. Okay, it's at least a good. Sign. Not not that not that we segregate those anymore, but like, right? Uh, you you know what I mean. I get like, no, I get you, I get you. It's it's not just a bunch of like men in there that look like the shark from Shark Tale. Uh, it's you know, I go in there. It's just that the fact that I was the only one that got that eight. That's kind of just wild. Maybe that's just the one barber that's like expressing his political opinion. Yeah. Through. Well, it's like I walk, I walk in there. It's like, sir, do you see how high my shorts are? Like, <laughs> like how high above the knee my shorts are? Do you think <laughs> that I support this? I came in to your barber shop yeah. wearing high waisted, high cut shorts and Birkenstocks. Oh yeah, and definitely think, a police supporter you, over you here. You think that you think that I want to stare at myself wearing? A thin blue line uh, draped across my chest. I don't know, man. Maybe they just do it to everybody. Who knows? It may, yeah. Maybe, you know what? Maybe if I had said something, you would have mm. been like, you know what? You stood up to me. Free haircut. Oh, there you go. Uh huh. That could have been, that would be the only positive maybe that would come out of that. Again, nine out of 10, right? Potentially. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that'd be like a one out of 10 chance of happening. I didn't pass statistics, so I don't even know. I just say things. <laughs> I um, made it through the first day of statistics and then changed my major. <laughs> yeah, I think I didn't last like a month. So <laughs> what can you do? History, right? That's how it is. Yeah. No, statistics. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. 
Yeah. Um, yes. So speaking of history yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, uh, weirdly enough, a- and nationalism, I guess. Kind of. Actually, yeah. It's still yeah. Relevant. See, we got there. We yeah, got we there did eventually. get there. All these these long intros lead us somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So, Joe, where mm-hmm. have you uh, brought us today at the Uncanny County Museum? So for today, you'll notice we're in a bit of an unconventional uh, spot here where we are on the museum grounds still, but we're actually at one of the UCM's uh, parking garages. So a bit of a... I thought that I thought this was just a brutalist art installation, but yes, it is a parking garage. Yes, it is still a parking garage, but this parking garage still has not only a purpose and a function of getting us to be able to go into the museum to look at all the other exhibitions, it also has history embedded within it. And if we were to connect this to what our source material is going to be for today's tour, it's going to be taking place here and amongst other places, we're going to be taking a look at how urban spaces and industrial ones, as well as sites that may or may not be considered important or just left onto the fringe, are actually quite relevant to our day-to-day lives and have their own histories within them that affect not only culture, but um, the way that we grow up amongst places that we live as well. And specifically, a lot of where I'm going to be taking this material from is talking about the book Unofficial Britain, Journeys Through Unexpected Places by Gareth E. Reese that just that came out in 2020. So Reese's book takes a lot of inspiration from uh, non-places, which is a philosophical term coined by the anthropologist and philosopher, uh, at least I believe he's a philosopher, Marc Auger, who describes the non-place as something that is of, it's it's a place that we've built, like basically to give this in an example, be like an airport or a mall or, you know, a, um, even a hotel, like some of the most basic versions of these things where hmm. you're, go, you're basically passing through to exist to do something else, but it's not a place that's of like public importance or of, um, you know, historical importance in that way. Mm. It's, it's a structure. The parking garage would be another example of this. It's a place that is built to do something, but it is not something that is inherently going to fundamentally change us or be a part of public interaction. It is not the town square. It is not the home. It's not the bar even, right? All of these things to which influence interaction and want us to be able to communicate that way. It is something non place quite literally not to be redundant right so maybe for the caffeine heads out there this is dunkin donuts philosophy versus starbucks philosophy actually that's a great way to put it yeah like something that wants you to get in and out have you know that is the extent of the purpose versus something that wants you to linger and maybe buy a nora jones cd yeah exactly it's the it it is the the yeah it's more of selling you the product getting you in and out just serving that function you know the airport is a good version of that because you're taking the flight to go somewhere you're interacting with the people to buy the ticket but there's nothing in the airport that makes you want to unless you're listening to music for airports i guess there's nothing really in there (laughs) that makes you want to like interact or be a part of the space it's kind of why you see a lot of art installations show up in places like that because they want a culture they they want to bring culture to them to make them not just these places that you're passing through to go somewhere else. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. yeah, with your Starbucks analogy there too, you're get or even just like a local coffee shop, you're gonna get a history of the building. You're gonna get a bit of music, some culture, a bit more fun. There's gonna be the people on their laptops hanging out. There's there's a reason to stay there. So right, okay, so so more more of a Denver airport where you're just yeah. sort of wandering around, looking at the weird murals and art yeah. installations. Yeah, kinda. I would say that's the. the the alternative there. Now, this that's the very base level of non-places. Now, we're not reviewing non-places necessarily, but it's it's the the author of Unofficial Britain quite literally brings that up in the beginning of saying that that is the mm-hmm. one of the bigger influences for this topic. But what Unofficial Britain is focusing on are parts. It's it's part these places scattered throughout Britain, but also the motorways, the um pylons the industrial factories parking garages urban streets everything and anything that is a part of the city living suburban living the monotonous living of the country life all of these things that fill britain that aren't necessarily in the spotlight and they're not necessarily these romantic idyllic versions of countryside are fundamentally a part of living there and affects the lives of everybody who does live there Hmm. and all of them have historical importance even though it's a more recent history you can still connect it back further in time based on the materials they're made out of and you can still connect it further back based on the locations that they're put up in interesting interesting so so something that was built with pure utility in mind that did not have did not have the considerations of design and comfort and culture, but it becomes incorporated into people's lives nonetheless. Exactly. Some of the examples that he brings up is a lot of how youth and other, um, you know, younger groups of, of teens, young adults are going through, you know, the motions of life, whether it's like first kisses or, you know, getting drunk under a staircase or something like all of these things that I guess teens do, but they're all happening in these places that are filled and riddled with these industrial complexes. So that then affects the way that they are experiencing life. And now their surroundings are these objects. So these Mm. objects or these places are now influencing the way they're going to remember things. And Interesting. Yeah, this is now in the book too. This is one of the things that he's discussing, and it's it's multiple different examples throughout all of Britain. It's it's not only just these places, these non-places, but also these, because he technically is arguing against the non-place and considering that these these mundane areas are actually important and do have a history to them and should be recognized as places that we consider place. But he's also discussing the effects that these places have on phenomena that exist around Britain, whether it's ghost stories and, you know, with Victorian children or, you know, werewolves and things like that, mm. that we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about because there's definitely a cryptozoology. Okay, I'm, I'm, re- I'm really, I'm really excited how we started with parking garages and we're somehow going to get it's, to werewolves. So yeah, I, it's a I little am, crazy. I'm ready for the, ready to drive up this ramp uh, and yeah. find, and, Find my parking spot. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's just get right into it. You know, let's drive right into it, I guess. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) no, well, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the way, the way that this book starts is him over basically outlining what the, what is unofficial Britain. And I guess I should also mention that unofficial Britain is the name of a website that he started, I believe back in 2011, where he was documenting all of these unofficial places 
within Britain, whether it be like the pylons, for example, that hold electricity or the parking mm-hmm. garages or all these other things and opening it up to the public for submissions. So people to enter in blog or, uh, blog posts or articles or, you know, witness accounts of things that they felt needed to be incorporated into this perspective and also down to the paranormal and sightings and things mm. as such. Some of the stuff that gets discussed in this book as he lays it out all in chapters, um, kind of grouping these things together is is based on that narrative essentially. So we go from the electrical pylons in the beginning as these, you know, these these modern stele if you will you know these pillars to the sky that are holding electricity and it's a bit romantic in that way to the way he's describing it and talking about it but it is quite interesting that they have that it is this like urban industrial thing that exists in our sphere in the countryside to hold the electricity to move everything across and now they're just these pillars you know Mm -hmm. that if we were to look at them in in the future backwards it's going to have that archaic effect if you will to it or it's going to feel um it's going to have more importance perhaps than we would think it does now Mm -hmm. even though it's just it's something that serves a function but then he's moving from that into even the ways that the druidic circles uh influence the way that the glasgow subway functions or even the way that there was a proposed yeah there was a proposed idea that um this one engineer in Glasgow in Scotland had to to connect the motorways following this this circular rhythm, like following this this pattern that was very ancient and very much a part of the like Celtic and Pict rituals and things like that, or even Druidic. And even though like some of that project got canceled, it still made its way into the subway where even now there's like modern day pagans, which is a nice kind of callback to what we were talking about before. <laughs> Um, who are really into that and helping work on, you know, the way in which that the trains need to be going, that it has to be a circle that I believe it's like left to right or something like that. And it can't go the opposite way because if it does, it's going to have bad luck and such. So mm-hmm. all of this like ancient mythology that's embedded within, the, you know, within Britain, within all of the different countries and islands and such are still making their way into the modern era, still making their way into contemporary society. They just inhabit these different um, architectural features and, and these also these cultural features, which I think is really right. interesting. And, and just to kind of summarize that, and then I think we should just, we can also start mm-hmm. discussing this because there's a lot here mm-hmm. and I know I'm laying yeah. out quite a bit. Yeah, no, it's a the, very interesting topic. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's exciting and there's a lot here and I think he does a really great job of, of weaving all of these different ideas together. I think it's a little scattered but there's only, you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot here to talk about. So one would need another book to, I think, even get into each subject. Mm-hmm. But it is all connected in that way that from buildings and non places to phenomena sightings and the way that motorways are laid out and the hauntings that happened on a haunted highway. We'll get into that too because it's quite oh. fun. Yes. Um, they're all, they're all connected based on this idea. And even treading back as how long and complex. British history is, it starts mm-hmm. to make sense why all of these things are accumulating. I mean, first off, like, are there like psychological implications of, you know, you can you can look at like the hinges of mm-hmm. Britain, these monolithic stone structures, post and lintel architecture, and then you look at, especially you know, in in industrialized britain 
probably looking at concrete buildings probably evokes a similar feeling. Does that bring about an idea of cultural continuity or does it bring about the idea of you are just another link in, in this, in this chain of history of societies that comes and goes like there's, because I, I guess when I think about industrialized Britain, there's so much stuff about it that also like feels apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, post World War Two, but also, you know, even further back, like industrial revolution, like there was so much about yes. uh, how how quickly society was changing from agrarian to industrial uh, and, and all the people that it upset. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a moment. Um, but I, I wonder if I, I guess, yeah, I guess that's my question. Does, does it make you feel like there's cultural continuity or does it make you feel like you're just living in the, the collapse of yet another society? Yeah. And, and that's something that I think I'm really interested in as well. And I don't know if this book is the place to provide those answers because it's almost like a reflection on them. But I do think that, that the implications here are going to differ person to person. Because one of the things that was interesting to me, like he, he references a lot of like local artists and friends of his and people that are responding to these places as well. Uh, One of them was this, this painting called Twilight of the Gods by the artist Maxim Griffin. And you know, the artist is, it it literally has these like um, the stele kind of meg, you know, monolith, structures Mm -hmm. that we see with like the hinges and then above it is this like you know flattened version of what a pylon is being visually represented to look Mm -hmm. like and what he kind of ends up with is like if the tower of sauron is like on two legs essentially (laughs) it's a little funny and a little kind of i mean it's interesting it's not my favorite kind of painting but i think it's actually it's quite fascinating i think he, he quotes it as an angry pylon project projects an orange skull and crossbones <laughs> which i think is it's quite a fun way to describe this painting but yeah you know it's it's again it's like thinking about how to translate these images visually and what they are doing and how they're representative and i think with even the lord of the rings example it's still that same idea of these towering figures that are haunting over you but um you know one of the one of the the artists that i was immediately connecting to this book was uh jonna Comfra who works mm. a lot with, you know, the history of industrialization in Britain and, and colonization, of course, too. But even with his project, uh, the multi-installation video, Purple, he's discussing the effects that these industrial sites in the countryside and in the cities have had on people living in them. I think he was actually affected as well, like medically mm-hmm. speaking, and it caused a lot of health issues. But mm-hmm. it's still beautifully visualized in this haunting way. Right, that right. these that these industrial areas become these almost like, you know, necropolis cities in the background uh-huh. that just exist and haunt oneself. But I, you know, I think I think psychologically, that's there. There is this continuity that's being shared where it's because it's the same structure shape that existed in an ancient sense of the the mm-hmm. hinges that are everywhere. It's not just Stonehenge right. for those of for those who may not know, there are multiple hinges throughout Britain. I also think that's quite interesting. Stonehenge just apparently is the most famous because it's also the most complete. Fire hinge. Water. Water. Hinge. <laughs> yes. Earth, Air hinge. Earth long, hinge. Long ago. <laughs> yes, exactly. So all the all the hinges will unite. Um only the Avatar, master of all hinges. 
<laughs> but it is, it, yeah, it, it's an interesting question that I think honestly deserves a little bit of more, um, you know, study. Blimey, it's that. the Hengitar. The Hengitar? He's the last air henger. He is? Right, exactly. Monty Python really could have did something with that. It's a shame. <laughs> yeah. But, so, um, well, yeah, no, John, John Cleese is just... Ta- you know, uh, <laughs> ranting about cancel culture now. Yes. He could he could have he could have been making a great avatar. Yeah, could character. have been making a, a new one, you know. I mean, uh, I do I I the 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 general spookiness of Stonehenge, I think, is partially its its simplicity, you know, that you can yes. project so much onto it because it is this big deliberate gesture made by people that, you know, predate so much of our modern culture that it's uh you know you can be like it's a supercomputer and you're like you know i don't know how to prove that you're wrong um yeah i mean i don't i don't think Mm. they're right i'm pretty sure it's just supposed to be a solar calendar but yeah i mean still good good for them you know Uh, they figured it out and we know how it's quite interesting but also, I, I'm really into this idea of forms being replicated through time. Uh, yeah. A long time ago, we spoke about the, sort of the theories of A.D. Stoliar, the Soviet anthropologist. And he, his sort of vision for um, these structures that would be found in, uh, in caves where... Uh, humans had sort of uh, built up these heaps of uh, bare bear remnants as sort of like this this remnant, this sort of this totem of the yeah. bear that used to live in the cave before they moved in. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it. I I feel like there's there's a lot that we we want to see in that type in in that kind of behavior uh i'm sometimes a little skeptical of the leaps that some that the 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 reach that you kind of need to assume that oh the reason that we build architecture is because we're replicating the caves and and all of these other things and sometimes i think it's a little far fetched but i don't know a ton about it admittedly but what I what I can also imagine, though, is like when you go into like a gothic or, or you see pictures of like a Germanic gothic cathedral and you walk and, and you look down the nave and you see those rows of columns. You can almost like get the impression not of a cave, but of like an ancient forest. And yeah the the impression of light filtering down through the canopy of you know the the enormous trees and forests that used to you know cover uh historic europe and it touches on something that i i don't know how much proof of that there is but it is something that i really feel in a lot of art which is like the struggle to recreate the gesture of something not just not just recreating something mm-hmm. in a pure representational sense but recreating the effect uh of something sublime yeah trying to 
approximate the feeling of encountering something that is long gone in our history, but still has an effect on us. So that's when I can kind of like mm. get into these uh, like very romantic ideas of, the, of Stoliar, you know, that the you, you walk in and the, and the silhouette of the cave bear still exists. You walk yeah. into a to a German cathedral and the the ancient forests that, you know, once covered Central Europe, you know, are still standing or at least a version of them are still standing. You know, there's it it reminds me a little bit of the, you know, I I know complicated figure to talk about. But uh, when we saw the Jimmy Durham uh, Uh, installation at the Venice Biennale, uh, those sculptures that he made where it was basically garbage, but with the skulls of, you know, European animals uh you know on them and it on the one hand it it i I just i just feel like it really illustrates that desperation of trying to uh show to to recreate the other um entities that used to share the landscape with us but then it also shows that it has been replaced with consumption and uh, trash, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very interested in this idea. I never know how much stock to put into it as an idea, but it is, it's always been tantalizing to me. That's so interesting. Cause I feel like that's when our, when our ideas start to cross paths a little bit and it's always mm. influential for sure. And, <laughs> and at least for me, cause like a, a lot of, for those who may not know, a lot of the things that I'm interested in my own practice and research is tied around both of these ideas, both what's a little bit hinted at in unofficial Britain and what Zan just said. Um, but to answer some of that point, or at least maybe let's, let's talk about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's something there hmm. and I'm just going to, I mean, I'm basing this off of, you know, my knowledge about a little bit about, you know, just the way that humans interact with phenomena throughout history. Mm-hmm. And I'll quote some ideas on this in a moment. Even right. I, I'm starting to read um, The Weirdest People in the World by Joseph Heinrich, which explains a bit of the Western psychology and how they, how the West essentially became what it is through mm-hmm. this weird um, psychology, right. which is Western educated, industrialized, democratic. No, educated democratic. Anyway, it's very interesting. I'll recommend it at the end of the tour. But with that Love being a good pointed, oh yes, it's it's, it's said a lot because it's very good. But um, a, a lot of the ways that cultures described in that in that study in that book, and also how in in unofficial Britain, the mourning of like for example wolves that go extinct in Britain in mm. the 1760s. The the author and you know Reese for example is explain is is bringing up the point that there's a really strong argument to be made why werewolf myths in the Victorian era become so popularized and that becomes the sort of current cryptid of the time even into today a little bit is because there's this mourning of nature that there's this loss that is almost incomprehensible because it happened based on that you know need for consumerism and need to expand and not let wolves basically be themselves right to 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 act naturally but instead we they claimed that that human beings claim territory of the land um 
and that results in the loss of something. And now to replace it, the myth comes up. Almost the um, what was what's the what's the thing last podcast always talks about the and Slenderman uh, term. Oh, you know the tulpa. Yeah, almost like the creation of a tulpa that in a way like you're evoking something to come out of that. And this is brought up within uh, this like phantom bear cryptid that exists within uh, you know England or Britain in mm. general. There's this idea that's circulating around of people like saying that a bear has come up to them or this like ghost bear. There's also the cat man. I forget what city specifically that's in, but it's a man who cat man do. Yeah, no, not Kathmandu. Catman. He he does do though. Um but he's but kind of like a leather man type figure in a way where it's you know potentially just a social somebody uh, who he, escaped. He, he he was betrothed to uh the the heiress of a leather fortune, if, no, or a cat fortune. A cat fortune, yeah. He was actually part of the aristocrats. Aristocats. Um <laughs> No, but it, it, it's an interesting. I mean, it's it's all these these cryptid ideas, and you know, kind of the the hound of the Baskerville, if you will, like these mm. these these beasts that are conjured into existence. Based but it's on a public it's a views. it's a very romantic idea yeah. in that it's it is a natural, a naturally produced challenge to human industrial power. The exactly. the idea that. The the idea is uh, attractive to us because it you know it says maybe there's something that is that is uh you know something that still humbles us as human beings because so much of what we did used to be about battling the elements and animals and everything and yeah once it's sort of once we sort of crossed that threshold you know reached that tipping point where now so much of nature it only exists because you know we we are trying to curb our own behavior uh it's uh you know it, it's you, you almost like what do you do with that with that part of uh, our our brains that are you know conditioned to expect uh expect nature to uh to have uh to, to have a, a challenge for us. Mm. The idea that like there are these long, these long reaching forms that we sort of like that, that show up later in culture and we don't necessarily, we recognize them, but we don't necessarily know like what their origins are. Right. Like if you think of, of the, of the naturalist forms that inspire things that we don't think of as naturalistic. I mean, if anyone uh, I mean, let, let's let's do an experiment like with our uh, our wonderful guests here at the museum. Let if I say picture an electric guitar. You know, most people are probably picturing even if you don't know anything about electric guitars, you're picturing probably a Fender Stratocaster. Wow, you got uh, me. Yeah, <laughs> or, or some, something. It's literally what similar. I was picturing. It was literally yeah, what I was yeah. picturing. Yeah, yeah, you know, someone out there's like, I was picturing an Ibanez gem, and it's like the Ibanez gem is still based on a Stratocaster. <laughs> um, Got him. <laughs> yeah, but picture that the the headstock, the the part of the guitar that has the tuning pegs. That shape is inspired by the side profile of the headstock of a violin. Huh. If you look at it from the side, you you can sort of you can sort of see it. It's got that that scroll top. Yeah. Um, that shape though 
is evocative of a fern. It is meant to. Oh yeah. It is meant to huh. evoke a fern unfurling itself. I mean, sort of the the same could be said of like, you know, Corinthian columns. Uh, you know, or or any Greek or Roman columns are not yeah. only meant to. Not only are the capitals of those columns meant to look like ferns or flowers, but like just the the i the 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 shape itself that we think of as columns as architectural features really go back to like ancient Greece and ancient uh Egypt where like uh reeds and sticks would be bound together to support uh structures. Hmm. Um, before before they were, you know, uh, more immortalized, more made out of stone and more permanent uh, materials. Like, there's all of these these shapes that we think of as very industrial, very human-made, that are really echoes of much more uh, ancient relationships with the geometries of nature. Um, one thing that I because we honestly didn't have enough time to talk about it. But when I was talking, um, it's been a while ago now, (laughs) but when we were talking about um, Native American uh, interpretations of fossils, there's really all over North and South America, you know, there was, uh, there are sort of like these motifs of vaguely elephant shaped, uh, things in a lot of art and mythology and storytelling. Hmm. And there's even like in, and this is, this is a little muddier and there's, it's, it's a little more difficult to tell if this is what is going on in, uh, cause I've, I've seen this in like a very old book on um, like pre-Columbian uh, Mesoamerican and, and South American uh, cultures. So, hmm. you know, th- this, this book, take it with a grain of salt. Sure. Um, but there's an architectural motif that is very similar looking to the head of an elephant. Huh? Um, and in the book that, you know, is like the one book that I have, that's like a hundred years old. It claims that this is evidence that like, you know, the ancient Hindus made it to South America. And, you know, introduced the motif of the elephant and it's been preserved in this architectural form. And that. But if you were to listen, if you were to read Adrian Mayer's book, uh, the, the one uh, Fossil Legends of the First Americans that we mm-hmm. referenced a few tours ago, she doesn't talk about that specifically, that those architectural features. But there are still, at least in, um, at least uh, as far south as like Mexico and Central America, there are uh, elephant-like myths. But those are more likely from them finding the remains of mammoths. Or it also could be just the... A, some sort of cultural memory of yeah. mammoths before they went extinct. Yeah. Uh, yeah so so there there's there's a lot of there's a lot of these things that we're probably all, globally probably sure, yeah. not entirely 
aware of where what what the things are that we're even trying to evoke in our architecture, in our fashion, uh, in so many different things. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that. I, 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 I completely agree as well. And I do think it's it's interesting like how they how these these figures or motifs and, and ways of creating things and making things, even the most like mundane possible structures do show back up. Uh-huh. And that, you know, architecture and even industrial planning is influenced by history. It is influenced by the landscape even if it's working against the landscape, right? Which mm-hmm. I do think is interesting. And in the case of like with Unofficial Britain as an example and what the author is posing with these structures, even with the motorways and the way things are shaped and how mm-hmm. structures are organized, like when you're dealing with so much history in a place that's not exactly that big and you know every single part of the island is covered in history, something happened you know, right. there and a lot it of goes ghosts. back a lot of, a lot of ghosts. That's why I talk about ghosts so much, which is kind of interesting, but it's interesting. It's not, in a, it's not in a like ghost adventures way. It's in a, the residual histories haunting the present day and how it embeds itself into these then places. And now that new history is happening in these cities, it's happening in the suburbs and all these industrial areas. It's now projecting new emotions new feelings new human interactions within these places that are then going to be these harbors that have all of those emotions within them all of these memories embedded into the stone just like we can embed all those memories within stonehenge as an example Mm -hmm. or within any sort of archaeological find on british isles or even just across the world And and i do think that's one of the things that you know humanity has done for so long is that all of the materials we're building with and all of the cultural artifacts and objects that we make do stem i i i think from one place at least if you're following the idea of that cultural evolution or this idea of of the continuous thought that helps to build cultures as they grow one can presume that you know stories get passed down and ideas are translated even if they get lost Mm -hmm. of what their meaning is that there's still these base levels that exist and i think it's hard not to 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 have an image of 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 what one thing was and then kind of almost recreate it like as an example Mm -hmm. the pylon compared to the you know the stele or the the um oh the the egyptian ah help me out here why am i blanking on the the Uh, washington monument why am i blanking on the obelisk Obelisk. it's another crazy name (laughs) the obelisk sounds like a pokemon sometimes but um you know (laughs) but you know what i mean like it's these it's these structures that all almost they share a similar feature what is that feature they are tall but it's and and architecturally speaking and engineering wise it makes sense to build that way yes but it's the same answer to like why you get pyramids everywhere it's these basic geometric forms that are able to be created that way so that's one in but then well, the, it, they it's, start it's to a, shift it's a chicken and the egg oh yeah for, for sure because i don't think that the people you know in the post-war period building you know concrete uh you know building projects in britain were thinking about stonehenge but the architecture m- you know, you you could always make make an argument that something is subconscious. You know, that's that that's that's just sort of the the world we're in, uh, right? Yeah, but uh, it, it's sort of hmm. 
I'm, I'll preface this by saying I don't know a ton about psychology, but there's, there, there is something to be said when a form shows up over and over again, and we, we have relationships to that form. There is something to be said about like what, what our subconscious is driving us to do. Uh, hmm. Or what it's what it's driving for our associations, you know. If we're if we're thinking about a, a Freud like approach to things, right? Um, which I'm not going to say is untrue in, oh in many God. circumstances, but also some some things are just shaped things for like other things for for purely utilitarian reasons. Yeah, I, I think too. So. I, I think I think the connection to Stonehenge again it's it's a chicken and the egg type of thing. Is it because we just build rectangles because it's a fairly efficient and and post and lintel architecture is is a strong shape to build in? Uh, you know it, I don't I don't think you uh, I, I I don't necessarily know that everyone building those structures is referencing those no. things more of they sort of accidentally uh in a way stumble back onto uh some other more core human behavior yeah it's like it's like an accidental convergence you know mm-hmm. it's this or yeah. of ideas or like it, it just reminds me of like a, an artwork by uh superior gillard who was it's like a video work i think of both found footage and um ones that might have been filmed in these like russian complexes that were I believe about to be destroyed. And it's like mm. the form they, they were built in the, so- the Soviet era. So like they're very utilitarian. It was the whole idea yeah. of the like strengthened circular community. And they look, they mm-hmm. look like stone. Like if Stonehenge was a, a, a like cyberpunk kind of form mm. or brutalist architecture form, it looks like that. And you're watching this like circular apartment buildings, just like from a helicopter point of view, almost like explode. Um, right. Then, okay. you know, if I'm not merging these, two artworks together making my own convergence <laughs> he's got a lot of stuff with urban buildings it's kind of all blends yeah. together but it's it's th- the point i'm making is that these things can still be called upon whether or not they're officially connected it's still yeah. interesting how the imagery shows up and i think within the british context of the, that the book is laying out but even within our own context depending on where in the world you are from there are patterns that exist based on what the imagery around you or the architecture and the forms around mm-hmm. you are repeating, you know, that the industrial complex from a distance can look like a city and can be reminiscent of that. Or it can be, you know, mm-hmm. that the pump itself can almost remind, it can remind you of that heart or it can remind you of something almost like beastly in the way that it's formed. The fog in John Acumfra's purple video has this very ethereal quality, right? That is coming from this, this industrial toxic wasteland but it feels almost if it's that sublime cloud that's like surrounding the atmosphere. It gives you this one moment of like, you know, peace. It's 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 an interesting duality that I think exists. It does exist. I want to say around us that I'm fascinated with. I think this book is fascinated with that. I think mm-hmm. my one of many critiques from unofficial Britain is that it doesn't quite know what to do with this information uh-huh. because I just, I think and this is part of my own sort of thesis that's ongoing, but I think just because things exude this information and they exude these feelings and histories and memories, we still have to figure out what we're going to do with them. And we still have to figure out what, how to respond 
in a way that's productive for the future, how to move forward, how to organize places in a way that will be better for the environment, will be better for humanity, will allow us to culturally adapt and proceed forward without essentially destroying the world or falling victim to like hyper objects and things like that, like climate change, for instance. I think where, you know, unofficial Britain a little bit fail, not fails, but it, it sort of stops a bit short is that these places in, you know, Gareth Reese's perspective are ones to be accepted as they are and integrated into society that we live amongst the parking garages and the you know the the pylons and the industrial complexes and they are going to be a part of the nature that we live in and we need to accept that and work with them and allow for them to be a part of our lives and not in a weird like industrialist way but in a way that they exist and how are we going to deal with it kind of sense which i think is interesting but it does leave a little bit to question like okay but they're artificial. What do we do with them? How do we go back? And without necessarily pushing a, we need to go back to nature because that can get weird and eco-fascist very quickly, as we know. But I think there has to be a midground or a way to take in all of these perspectives or these objects and move it in a sense um, forward. That's accepting the fact that materials are constantly going to be, you know, recreated and repurposed and reused, but then what they become in the world that we live in today, especially, you know, can be concerning and it needs to be, you know, worked on of how we're going to restructure and how we're going to create it. And maybe it is in the repurposing of the buildings, you know, the abandoned parking garages for a lot of kids are becoming that type of playground scenario. It's the place to hang out. It's the abandoned house, right? It's this, it's the space that becomes yours that you, you make into your own thing, which he talks about a little bit in unofficial Britain as well. And I think that's also rather interesting that these, these once used places are now spaces that have become something else. And then, you know, maybe in the future, this will be an, a place that becomes a whole other area. Maybe it's a botanical garden. Maybe it's a venue like for concerts. I don't know. <laughs> but I guess that's sort of the thing that I find very interesting of where, what we do with all of the information. What do we do with the history embedded within these places? How do we deal with it? How do people become aware of it and incorporate it and know that it's an active factor in our lives? I mean, in the case of the, of, of, of unofficial Britain, you know, when it's all of these industrial places, it's clearly you know, it's very quite obvious, right? When you have all these ancient historic ruins paired against the industrialist landscape or the uh -huh. very overbuilt city, right? That those things are in contrast with each other. They're conflicting in a way where it's the old and the new, but they're still built in a similar fashion and they're reacting and responding to one another. And there's still history embedded in those things, in those places. If we bring it over to America, you have a similar thing happen where when you're building on quite literally stolen land in a history that's very violent. It's, it's, a it's a conflicting feeling of when things get built up and when urban sprawl exists. And there's a lot of resonance within those spaces that I think we all feel, but don't exactly know what to do with and how do we yeah. heal from it. So it's a lot of thoughts. It's a lot of ideas and philosophies yeah. that come to mind, at least for me. And I think, you know, in, in terms of within the non-places, within a lot of other philosophical content around these things. So it is very interesting. And I, and I do highly recommend if you can get a copy to read Unofficial Britain for sure and to, to look into non-places and to really question as we're looking around in the most mundane possible places, you know, that, you know, even as the, as the author states, that these places do have 
they do have merit to them, right? They do have history, and it's important to recognize that uh, these places can be places. But again, it's figuring out how are we going to handle that history of these spaces, and what are we going to do moving forward to recognize that history of them? All I know is I don't think it's so much that everything is phallic as much as maybe dicks are just shaped like everything else. Hmm. Maybe, you know, it is a... Yeah, huh. I mean, in to to <laughs> to piggyback off of yeah. that as well. I mean, it, it reminds me of a lot of different things. I mean, the yeah. the, the connection, especially to Russia, is also interesting because I what is what is that artwork? It's like Symphony for a City or something. Oh um, yeah 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 by um oh my god why am I forgetting the name of that? We were literally just talking about that. We too. were we were talking about this, but I mean the whole concept of that in in the history of sound art um the i this idea being that nature is this is high fidelity sound and as nature gets pushed into the periphery by industrial processes all of these new sounds that have never been made before are now being made all over the city Mm -hmm. um but in a way the buzzing and the rumble and all of these things, all of these n- nature sounds have been replaced by uh, similar sounds that are being made by machines and cars and, uh, you know, telephone lines and everything. And the idea being that this man-made stuff is lo-fi. It is lo-fi that has replaced high-fidelity sounds, that has replaced yeah. natural sound. And... I think that is one interesting response to it Mm -hmm. in like the UK in particular, if you look at their history um, in, you know, during industrialization, there was as people are basically being forced off of land that they have lived on for generations where with, with the end of feudalism, with the end of the idea that, um you are a lord people live on your land and you they work for you you quasi own them but not really right but basically you know you you protect this land and people live and work on it yeah and uh, uh, for for your benefit but still it's a place for them to live uh and then with industrialization all of these people getting forced out of these uh forced off of uh farmland and and forced out of the forests and being forced to live in cities um that period was a lot of the impetus for the romanticization of british cottage life and yeah that that it, I mean, back then, I, I don't know if you would call it cottage core because I think they they still had cottages. Yeah, but it's just core core. The the idea of of pastoral idyllic Britain, you know. Yes. Yeah. That very much. You look at the artwork of John Constable. Yep. That is very much what that artwork is doing. When the reality, when everyone's reality was more um, Turner, a a vortex of machinery and. Uh, and, uh, and horrors beyond your imagination. Right, Um, exactly. But if you look at the way that they then started to design 
the roads and the trains going in and out of the cities of Britain, it was very much meant to evoke a naturalistic, idyllic countryside. And then suddenly you turn a corner and the city is unveiled to you. Like you're in Birmingham. Yes. (laughs) And, (laughs) but, but that itself is artificial. That, that is a completely artificial thing. There's no, there's no wilderness. Uh, there's hardly any, but there's the no wilderness down. in no. Britain. No, there's like the they've got the forest of Dean, and like, yeah. but yeah, no, the wolves are gone, the bears are gone. Yeah. I was actually, I was just uh, actually listening to a thing about how there is a project to reintroduce bears to Ireland. Actually, whoa, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of an interesting. Uh, I mean that sort of even like ties into uh the the, the ghost bear ghost wolves yeah. uh forms. I mean so but but it, it it's interesting. It's it's yeah. an echo of it as as it somehow gets reintroduced. I mean is that is 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 that uh that worry of seeing, you know, a wolf or something is this how we get like the alien big cats? you know, that we that we talked about way back? Is this how we get werewolves? I I mean, you mean like in, in the sense of that, like paranoia? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I, mm-hmm. I buy into that idea because it makes the most, I mean, it makes sense, like quite literally, mm-hmm. like why why else do you have these, these phenomena and then later these like, um cultural stories being constantly transformed and placed into the pop culture realm. I mean, how else do you get werewolves of London without the removal of the wolves? Right. But I, mean, God, uh, I don't, I don't know. And then where do we get all summer long by kid rock? Exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a real butterfly effect if you take one away. But um, no, I, I, I do think that it's, it's connected in that sense and that there's this, there's the longing for it to return. And so therefore we need the, the cryptid, to enter that the man is quite literally turning into nature and mm. into something beastly. I mean, it's, it's quite literally what all bloodborne is discussing in there too, but it's <laughs> it, w- little Eltrich, but still, I, I think even within the idea of the cryptid, like we've discussed multiple times that that stems from this need to have that sense of mystery to still remain in the world that we desire to, to, for yeah. the wilderness to still hide something that we haven't just mm-hmm. seen yet. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about that, that, it is so crazy how much how 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 much we can really expand our perspectives now and even though everybody's becoming much more insular which is a whole other thing but that you can literally like go on tiktok for instance and get a perspective of somebody living in a completely different country with a completely different opinion instead of cultural rules and ideas and histories can then comment on the same thing that you're looking at and bring their own point of view which is usually a meme or something crazy you know <laughs> like everybody in a comment section but i just think that that's so it, it's bizarre like when we really step away and think about it like oh man we we have actually closed the gap in terms of like mystery on how big the world is. And I mm-hmm. do feel like there's a lot of, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's, there's, there's something, there's definitely scholarly evidence that has to be explored here about that link to maybe conspiracy theories or reasons of misinformation and ideas on creatures and monsters and whatnot that may or may not exist, but I, I'll keep it neutral. 
But I think the phenomena <laughs> answer, like this point of view, and this is, and what you even talk about with the landscape and the idea of the idyllic British landscape is absolutely in unofficial Britain, and he talks about it a little bit. And I and I agree. I think that they're all they're all interconnected in that way. But for sure, the the phenomena being extensions of that paranoia and fear and not knowing what to do with it. I think transforms into these monsters. And I feel like there is reason for that. I also wanted to add that the piece that you were talking about is called Symphony of Sirens. It's 1922 uh, by Arseny Aramov. So just, okay. just for some context, so that way we have it here documented. But it's very interesting. That is a crazy video too, or just like idea. Yes. But yes. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, all, um, it's all connected in this way. You know, how the, mm -hmm. how the natural... How the natural sounds are changed, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, yeah, no, this, yeah. this this was a, a really interesting uh, <laughs> conversation prompt. I agree. I'm glad. Yeah, it's it's a again, it's a great book. I definitely recommend. It's really easy to read. I read it in like three days. It's 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 not terribly long, but it flies pretty fast. There's a lot of good source material in there. I think it's quite interesting, even if you're not interested in Britain. These are things that, again, can be explored in any country with its own cultural set of rules. I think it's pretty relevant. Um, again, there's a desire for more, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and there's not these questions to be answered. I do think it is just important to, I don't know, just to question these places and these things and these cultural artifacts and industrial areas around us and really wonder not only their purpose, but the history of what they're made mm -hmm. out of and the history yeah. behind them and where they're, what they're on and what they're functioning as. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah so and this was a great conversation i'm glad thank you also yes. zan for bringing all these incredible points of view to the well, conversation th thank you for this research and thank you oh, for of course, the prompts no yeah no i guess well we can finally leave the parking garage i guess yeah we could actually go into the museum now okay yeah, uh, oh actually it was God. an installation the whole time it's crazy. Uh, wow great uh no. <laughs> um i mean it has it has all of the excitement of plenty of uh uh conceptual galleries i've been in, oh so, yeah well you know the the sometimes the industrial space is the most interesting just like hangar mm. bicoca right but um sure yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> all i know is you know we we go into all these old industrial spaces you know old tire factories that are now art galleries and yeah that it's uh i don't i don't know i i I'm still sometimes uh, I am always fascinated by like how sometimes those spaces themselves are so much more interesting than a white I know. gallery. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, but anyways, yes. Uh, well, wonderful tour, wonderful conversation. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Joe, for bringing in this topic. I no guess this brings us next to. Uh, a, a segment that we haven't done in a minute. Uh, stick it or ticket. All right. I don't know if I actually have anything for stick it or ticket. Oh, really? I, I might have failed. Not, yeah. uh, I'm trying to think. G, of... Not G. Uh, I mean, it was a marquee, but we saw a while you were visiting me. We uh, drove past a church that said Jesus <laughs> is God's selfie. Yes. Yeah. You know what? I want that. What was that? We don't talk about that enough because that was very bizarre. I I I'm all, I'm so tempted to just go and see what exactly the the reasoning was for that. So 
I I saw two thought provoking bumper stickers. Okay. Um. One said, "Drive around me, I'm old." <laughs> I thought was very funny. That's a good um. One. Then I was dry. I was actually riding shotgun uh, while my brother was driving me around, and we were behind this truck, and part of the lettering had scratched off, and it looked like like a diagram, like a schematic of something. Hmm. And it was like anatomy of a some letter that's been scratched off EW. And huh. I was like, what on earth could this possibly yeah. be? It like looked like a torpedo or something. What? Huh. And then I like tried to look up what on earth this was. And it turns out it is a weathered version of a bumper sticker called Anatomy of a Pew, and it is a cross-section of a uh, bullet. Oh, weird. Yeah, that one is... That's bizarre. Okay. Why do you... It's, it's just... I mean, first of all, if you've got... First of all, I mean, get get, like... Get it some like grease paint or something and fill back in yes. that letter because it is very confusing. It's very confusing. And yeah. also, why do you want that on your back windshield? Ah, <sighs> you know, people really like bullet bills, man. You know, from Mario. So <laughs> maybe it's part of that. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> oh, well, God. next, I guess we should get into uncanny recommendations. Yes. Yes. So what what do you have to recommend besides uh, unofficial Britain? Yes, which I would, I definitely would recommend. Well, I have a lot of stuff, actually. Uh, the first, I, I've read a bunch of books, like, kind of fast, for me, at least. And the first being Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam by uh, Nick Terse. Mm. Pretty heavy book, and it's very heavy. Absolutely a necessary read if you have any interest. Uh, honestly, I think it's a necessary read for just U.S. history. I'm going to say it right now that this is something that for sure should be required reading it's very haunting it's very dark quite literally and heavy Mm. but it details very very um you know heavy material about the vietnam war and america's war crimes during it uh nick terse goes into an immense amount of research i mean half the book is notes just to show you where all this information is being sourced from and it essentially is covering all of these interviews and first-person accounts and documentation that's recorded by, you know, the the military during this time and essentially hiding all of the mm. the killing that's going on and the killing of civilians to increase, um, you know, the amount of uh, bodies killed because the and well, we won't get into it here, obviously, but the the war in Vietnam essentially was a numbers game and it had a lot of devastating consequences. I, I do absolutely recommend this book. It's a very interesting read. It goes very quickly. It's just a, a little tough subject matter, so for sure read at your own discretion, but I think it's really important. Uh, the next book that I'm currently reading is what I mentioned earlier, The Weirdest People in the World by uh, Joseph Heinrich. I, I'm, I don't know if I'm in far enough in to declare it a, a read for sure of like, yes, you should be reading this. But so far, I'm really enjoying it. I think it's really interesting and has opened up a lot of different perspectives on the history of not only humanity across the world and the different ways that our cultures have all developed in the way that they have, but it's ex- getting into the explanation as to why Europe is weird in its acronym and why it 
evolved the way it did and how we got to the industrial revolution and how we got to colonization and all of these other features that are so particular and peculiar about it. So it's a nice, it's a nice uh, sub kind of a sidelined answer from guns, germs and steel, like getting into something a bit more specific. Um, and mm-hmm. the next things I just wanted to recommend is uh, two movies. The first being uh, Godland by uh, Hjolnir Palmason. This movie's crazy. It's really good. It's real, but it's very abstract. Like I, 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 hmm. I would recommend it. It's a telling of this priest who goes to Iceland during the eight, late eighteen hundreds, and is this is when Iceland is under Denmark's rule, so it's a colony at this point, and he is trying to cross the country to set up the church that he is supposed to be uh, positioned at. And he's interacting with the local Icelanders and not really speaking the language and being very um, particular and rude and just sort of, it's just so interesting seeing these, these close proximity cultures being so different from one another based on the isolation from history, but also paired against the really stark and dramatic landscape that is Iceland. I don't want to say too much because I think this movie just speaks for itself, but if you get a chance to watch it, I highly recommend and the next one is uh, Shiva Baby, which was just so crazy. <laughs> I, I I really enjoyed it. It's super short. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. Give it a watch if you need something. Uh, it does have a lot of anxiety, and it's very anxiety-inducing, though. So if you're not into movies like that, it might not be for you. I personally really enjoyed it. And lastly, just for some music, I wanted to recommend Hot Spring by Spencer Radcliffe. It's not a new album. It's from like 2019, but it's just super chill. Definitely a vibe for the summer days. I definitely recommend it. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I got. So lots of stuff going on, but I, yeah, always interesting to read and listen to some new things. How about you, Zan? What do you have to recommend? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> very, no, I mean, a lot of really cool recommendations. I also know yeah. we've had like a little bit of a backlog too, since, uh, uh, last time, uh, we had all of our wonderful guests on. Yeah. We these are over really last ha- the weeks. We did it's not, like we did not have the, the typical time that we could, uh, devote to, uh, our recommendations. Making up for it. I finally finished, uh, the house of the spirits by Isabella Allende. Um, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I mean, I see why it, you know, was, you know, just such a, such a huge hit immediately when it came out. I'm very glad that I finally like read it and I have like, you know, uh, her, her more adult material to, you know, uh, be, uh, behind me. And Mm -hmm. it's, you know, not just not, it's, it's wonderfully told it is, it, it is such an interesting, uh, exploration of historical fiction and, you know, looking at, uh, the, uh, looking at the way that generations uh you know will pass down certain things and challenge other things uh from person to person how some things stay the same some things change and then you know the uh the, the as you go through it you do sort of realize that the non specificity of what country they're in what year it is you do sort of realize that it is like the story that was unfortunately very common across Latin America, where, you know, a uh, a post Spanish colonial republic. Catches a glimpse of a socialist government that is then 
very quickly overthrown uh, by a military dictatorship. Uh, but also, you know, it is a very important, I think, it, it's a very good, I mean, it's fictional, obviously, and it's magical realism, but it is such a such an amazing grasp of class and uh and 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 the politics of 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 sort of a, a settler colonial country that hmm. is that is still seen as sort of separate from european powers i i just i highly recommend it just such such a wonderful book such memorable characters it is it is a it is a book where you really do have to wrestle with the uh, y- you have to get through a lot of awful things that one of the main protagonists of the story does. His actions, you know, uh, not only hurt people around him, his family, his country, but you do still wind up having you know some uh some feelings for him at certain points and and he is a monstrous person there's no getting around that but i guess you do have to ask yourself you know if if someone if someone like that you know still can make a a good choice at the end you know what does that mean you know obviously it doesn't forgive what they've done but what does that mean for your idea of a person? And I and I like being in that gray gray area. I really liked uh, exploring uh, that that kind of story. Um, and you know that book, as much as I loved it, it took me multiple. It took me a month to read. You know what took me one week to read? What's that? I'm glad my mom died by Jenna McCurdy. <laughs> Talk about pacing. Oh my god. That book, um, maybe we'll just have to talk about that at another point. Like we'll sure. talk about child stars or Nickelodeon or something. But that, if you are looking for for a quick read that is, you know, um, you know, uh, in, in one sense, you know, a really great story of you know triumphing over uh, all kinds of things that are inflicted on you. You know, still coming out the other side. But also, you know, it's um, it's a really startling uh, view of a narcissistic parent, you know, from the point of view of someone who, you know, this isn't someone who's like in their 60s or 70s writing a memoir. You know, this is someone who's our age. Uh, right, right. You know, someone in someone in their, I think, late. Yeah, she's I think she's she's got to be like me the same age as us. I think. Yeah, like, I think so. Late 20s. But like, you know, uh, the uh, th- this is someone, you know, remembering their childhood and, and having that realization of, you know, just just what she was um, uh, subjected to. But, you know, really well written. It's funny. It's sad, you know, hmm. it, but there's a reason everyone's talking about it. I do. I do recommend it. You know, okay. even as someone that wasn't necessarily a fan of iCarly, but uh, it was it, it's it's certainly eye opening to how you might, you know, think about, you know, child sure, stars sure. or anything like that. Um, 
And then, uh, oh man, all the music that I've got to recommend is stuff that you've recommended to me. So I don't even, I don't even know (laughs) if that's fair. Uh, but you know, a song you could listen to. Oh yes. Yeah. Nice segue. Is, oh, you could listen to, uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. I actually really been digging that album. But no, you could also listen to the first single by this up and coming band called Ghost Modern. Yes, yes. Yes. Dada is out now streaming everywhere. You can go listen to it, listen to it. You know, if you listen to it multiple times in a row, you'll probably start to get all of the secret hidden messages in it. Yes. Uh, so we definitely song. recommend that you do that. We definitely recommend that you uh, mark out uh August 18th on your calendar uh, to be in Kingston, New York to see uh, a full album release from this Mm -hmm. groundbreaking band, Ghost Modern. Um, And uh, yeah, I I know I'm jumping into what's going on outside of the museum. Oh, let's do it. Joe, I am so excited about this. Oh, same here. No, happy to be a part of it. I'm so happy we can finally talk about it. We got the upcoming show, so be sure to be there in Kingston. It's going to be fun. We're super excited to play this stuff live. Absolutely stream Dada and be sure to stream the album when it drops very soon. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, we're absolutely looking forward to doing this. It's been a year making this. Uh, yeah. It's been a process, but it's been really fun. As always, thank you for the support, too, from those who are listening, from those who yeah. are streaming Dada. Thank you so much for doing so. And for those who have it, now you get to. So, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, Joe, this has been an amazing experience. Mm. It has been uh, a life uh, goal of mine for a while now to, uh, you know, to properly release music. So I am uh, when we do perform this live, I will be very sentimental. I'm just warning you. Oh, it's OK. I same yeah. here. It'd be the first time yeah. playing a concert. So. Yeah, um, I guess also in similar vein, uh, I have a show coming up uh, September 2nd uh, at the Folk House Collective, also in Kingston, New York. Hmm. Um, that is all I okay. uh, have to say. Oh, wait, no, I don't. Um, if you are listening <laughs> to this uh, in a few weeks uh, from July 30th to August 5th, I will be teaching a workshop at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina. There are still a few spots available in that class. So if you are are around and you would like to take a very intensive uh, painting class taught by me, uh, that is something you should consider signing up for. Uh, And I am so excited for this opportunity to do this workshop. Uh, I will see you there. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only thing I really got going on, well, actually, no, you, the, one of the things I have happening is that the exhibition I'm a part of teleportal Munich calling is still up in Munich, Germany, uh, at Donner V Blitz gallery. So you can check that out if you're around there. If not, you can visit teleportal.gallery, the website to watch the video that I put together about all the artists talking about their work and the process. There's now photos of the exhibition on there. So you could check out that process and what was involved there and follow us um, at Teleportal Gallery on Instagram. And also, you could check out my music uh, entitled... Well, you could check out my album out there. 
which is on Spotify, Apple Music, it's streaming everywhere. Feel free to check it's that out. out. There. It is out there. It's very convenient to promote it that way. <laughs> uh, but no, it was, it was super fun to be putting that together while also working on our album together, The Ghost Modern One, and being influenced from the music that Zan and I were making and bringing that into the ambient sphere. So yeah, super excited about all of these these projects happening. But that's pretty much all I have going on right now. Sweet, sweet. Yeah. Um. Okay, well... uh. Obviously, you have been listening to the Uncanny County Museum. Uh, if you have any uh, notes, comments, concerns, questions yeah. you'd like us to read uh, on the air, you can email us at uh, uncannycountymuseum at gmail.com. If you want to find us uh, museum after hours, we are at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. If you want to find me, I'm at Xanasaurus on Instagram. Uh, you can also find my uh me and my artwork on my website, zampeters.com. And I'm at Josemino Art on Instagram, and you can find my projects as well on my website, josemenoart.com. I do not plug that enough, um, <laughs> but there it is. So feel free to watch some stuff. Mm-hmm. From the Uncanny County Museum, I have unofficially been Zan Peters. And I've unofficially been Joe Semino. Live.